The book of Ruth. I'm going to start chapter 2 this morning. Uh, quick recap, chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 spans about 10 years. Chapter 2 spans one day. <laughs> A little contrast. Um, if you remember, a man uh, living in Bethlehem with his family by the name of Elimelech took off. He, there was a famine in the land, probably God's judgment on the, uh, the rebellion of the people. That's the cycle in the book of Judges. And rather than get right with the Lord, he took himself out from under the promises of God by leaving the promised land, going to Moab uh, with his wife and his two sons. And uh, we're told in chapter one that, that Elimelech, that's this guy's name, that he died, leaving his wife to raise their boys. And over the span of the next few years, we don't know exactly the timeline, doesn't tell us, uh, Malon, Chilion, the two sons, married Moabite women, and then they died. And so we close the chapter looking at Naomi uh, being bitter, uh, having bitterness uh, over the circumstances that she had endured in her life. Uh, not easy, I, I can't imagine, it's saying goodbye to your husband and then both of your sons. And uh, bid her daughters-in-law initially to come back with her to Israel they uh, they got part way, and Naomi, I believe, uh, was kind of stricken in her conscience about this is a good move for me, but it's sure not for the girls. <laughs> and they uh, she pleads with them four times to go back, go back to your people, go back to your gods, go back to your families, find another husband. It's been hard for her. She intended to walk on alone when she told the the girls that, that her daughters in law that. They move on, and uh, the first chapter ends with Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, getting back to Bethlehem. Ruth, having separated herself from Moab, separated herself from the Moabite gods, and embraced the people of Israel and the God of Israel. Notable. In chapter 2, the focus comes off of Naomi and on to Ruth and her interactions with a guy by the name of Boaz. He's introduced in the first verse. Uh, if I were going to sum up <laughs> chapter two, <laughs> it would be uh, three words. Ruth happened to. <laughs> we're seeing that uh, in this, that she happened to go to a field that belonged to a guy by the name of Boaz. And, and we'll see that there was nothing happenstance about that. So here, these two women are, they're, they're widowed, they're bereaved, they're poor, they're vulnerable. There are no men in their lives. And in a patriarchal society, that's significant. Uh, so because of that, because of their stature and their status, when they came back to Bethlehem, back to Israel, they had no choice but to avail themselves of the laws of Israel that had to do with the alien, the widow, the poor, the disadvantaged. And, and pick up the leftovers in the fields after the harvesters had reaped the crops. Something I think it's interesting, just uh, and I'm not really particularly going anywhere with this, is that Naomi, all through this, is reactive. She's reacting to her circumstances. She's reacting to the loss in her life. And I'm not saying I blame her for that, but if you contrast that with Ruth, you never see Ruth saying, 
oh, look at the things in my life. You see Ruth being here proactive, and, and she just jumps right in. She doesn't wait for Naomi to show her uh, the ropes. She very politely and respectfully gets right to work. And, and her attitude, she you could see that she is a proactive person. In verse 2, she says, please let me go and clean in the fields. In verse 7, please let me. In verse 13, let me. She's being proactive. She's tackling the tasks at hand. So before we get into all of that, uh, it's important for the writer here, we think it was Samuel, but nobody knows, uh, to lay some groundwork as he introduces a major player, a major character in this story. Uh, And we'll get right to it. In verse 1, it says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. It says he was a relative, uh, a kinsman uh, of Naomi's husband. Uh, now, if you've been through the book of Ruth at all, you understand that the, the, the word is goel for the kinsman redeemer. That's not the word that's being used here. It's yada. And, and what it means is he's a relative. It, there's, it's, it's not specifically calling Boaz the kinsman redeemer. That comes later. But we don't know how he was related to Elimelech, only that he was. And so uh, we're told here that he was a man of great wealth. And the, again, the, in the Hebrew, uh, and the words translated literally mean a man of standing. So he was an upstanding man. He was a man that was probably trustworthy. He may have been wealthy. Uh, literally, though, it, it, it translates the same as in Judges chapter 6. Remember when the angel of the Lord showed up to Gideon and he said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. It's the same words here. He's a man, mighty man of valor. Uh, and that's, it's the same term that's used in, Gideon, in Judges 6. So uh, interesting, talking about Boaz's character, his great-grandson, David, would, would later write, and we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to bounce forward. A lot of times we bounce back when we're looking at, and we'll do some bouncing back and look at the law of Moses, but uh, we're going to do some bouncing forward and looking at some scriptures that bring light to what we see here long after these events took place, but they still apply. Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. Uh, David, the king at that point, wrote, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. We see Boaz didn't bail on the land when there was a famine, and he has prospered. He has done well. Uh, Psalm 37 continues and says, feed on his faithfulness. I like that. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Uh, there's an interesting dynamic at work in that, folks, that, and it's very similar to when Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, I will, I'll, 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 I'll do it for you. And he doesn't say maybe, he says he will. But when we delight ourselves in the Lord, when we're so connected to Jesus through the agency of the Holy Spirit, his desires become our desires as we're learning to think like he does. That's part of what we're about here. And, and as we do that, he, as he says, look, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because his desires have become my desires and consistent, they're consistent with who he is. In the same way that when I pray, when I ask something in his name, consistent with who he is, consistent with his character with his nature. 
He says, I'll do it. It's, it's, this is the kind of guy that Boaz was. He was a godly man. I want to take a look and I want to unpack the name Boaz and take a few minutes on that. Uh, it's, it translates. Remember we looked at we looked at Ruth and Naomi and Orpah and Malon and Chilion and all of that, and we translated their names. And because names are indicative of character in the Old Testament. And, and, and so when we look at Boaz, his name literally means in him is strength. And we see that it's not necessarily that he's buff, but it means that he has strength of character. He is a strong man. He is a man of conviction. And we see that in, in the story here. And we'll get to that. Uh, but it's not the only time that the name Boaz is used in the scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 7, King Solomon was having the temple built. And he instructed the artisans, he, he, they named the guy, I don't remember his name. But he says, I want you to, here's the front door, the entrance to the temple. And then the portico, the outer part, right before you walk into the temple proper, He said, I want you to build two huge columns, pillars. And they, he gave specific instructions. They'd be made out of bronze and and they would be beautiful. And and so there was a a pillar on the right and a pillar on the left. And you would look at these pillars. He named these pillars. They they were about 45 feet high. They're huge. Uh, He named the one on the right, Yakin. Uh, if you tried to say it in English, you'd read Jachin. (laughs) I thought, no, it can't be it. But it's Yaquim. What that means, what that name means is he will establish. That's Yaquim. Now, Yaquim was one of the sons of Simeon. Remember when God divided the, yeah, the 12 sons of Israel and and one of them was Simeon. One of his sons was Yaquim. He never shows up in, in, I mean, any practical or observable way in the scripture. Later, there would be uh, a priest named Yaquim that, that, that we see later on. But there's very little said about him. But this name is significant. And it's significant that Solomon named the pillar on the right Yaquim. Remember, uh, we had some friends over the house the other night. And my aunt has a, a Hebrew Bible uh, that she got from her father, who was a Jew. And, and it's this metal stamped thing and and... <laughs> He got it down and he was thumbing through and, and we were looking at it and how the books are arranged opposite for us because we read left to right. Even the books there, we realize that you start the Bible at the end. It'd be like us opening to Revelation and it's Genesis and you go backwards. So I think it's important because here, these two pillars, the one on the right, which would be the first one that you would observe, was Yaquim. He will establish the pillar on the left was called Boaz. In him is strength. Now, neither of these pillars bore any weight. They were not load-bearing, okay? Usually when you put pillars up, you're going to put something on top of them that they're going to hold up. That wasn't the case with these. Why? Because they were symbolic. Because they told a story. Because the literal translation of both of those names meant something. The temple of God would become a place where people could experience the reality of what these two pillars symbolized. From that building, it would go out to the whole community. Come, be established with the Lord. Come and receive the strength of the Lord. And that's why those pillars were put in place. In the days of the judges, 
Boaz would play a vital part in Ruth's life in two ways, as she would be established in the land and in the lineage of Messiah. Remember in chapter one, she says, your people, my people. Also that she would be strengthened in and covered by the Lord. We'll see that further in the study this morning. Your God, my God. I was thinking about this. I thought, man, I would love to have two pillars, like right there. (laughs) To establish and to strengthen. Uh, To be able to, to, to somehow visually state to people walking in this place, come and be established and be strengthened in Jesus. Because that's truly what we're about. That's the core of why we exist. Not so we can play church. But we want people to know Christ. We want them to be established in their faith. We want them to be strengthened in their walk. Verse 2, So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean the heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So it's worth noting that Ruth is referred to here as the Moabitess. That happens five times in this book. And essentially... It's God's divine way of stating his grace towards this foreign woman, this woman who was born outside of the covenants of Israel, born outside of the promises of Israel, but she had come in. We're going to see, folks, in the weeks ahead, we're going to probably take one whole study and look at the types, the typological significance of all that's going on here because so much points to Jesus how we're grafted in. Uh, I'm not going to rabbit trail on that. I've got too much ground to cover. So, but it's interesting because we, we see that, that here's Ruth and she's coming into this foreign land and she's going to find acceptance in Boaz. She's going to find a place in their society. She's going to find, she's going to discover the God of those people whom she had come to embrace. She says, after him in whose sight I might find favor. Now, she's not specifically referring to Boaz here. This is a general statement. She's talking to Naomi. She's saying, I'm going to go out. I'm going to find some food. And hopefully I'll find somebody that's in the fields that I can find grace. And that's how that word literally translates. In whose sight I might find grace that I could glean in their fields. It's referring to any person that might give her permission so the other thing, too, is, is Naomi's response to her is simply one word, go. She's, but you've got to realize Naomi is hopeless at this point. She's still, she's worn down, bitter circumstances in her life. And she says, go. She's at a low point. And, and, and yet we'll, we'll see Naomi's hope beginning to stir. Right now, she doesn't have a lot of hope. She has, no, she has no way to look into the, even the brief, the short future to see the success that Ruth will have by the end of the day. And yet uh, she has surrendered. And, and folks, I, I, you know, I think sometimes when we're faced with tough circumstances, when we have things going on in our lives that we don't understand, when we have things that are painful, when we're going through trials, I, I think sometimes we surrender hope too quickly rather than see that our circumstances are providential in God's eyes. It's interesting, again, we never see Ruth speaking from her lack. 
in these circumstances in the same way as Naomi. And it's not to put Naomi down. It's just to state that their character is entirely different. They're, they're looking at their circumstances as entirely different. When she says to glean uh, here, I want to go out and glean in the fields. It, it, they didn't have welfare in the classical sense that we have welfare. They didn't have Section 8 <laughs> in, in Israel. They didn't. <laughs> somebody said, oh, good. Um, but they didn't, they, they didn't have government supplied welfare, but they did have a welfare system. Uh, it was, theirs was a provision that was found in the law of Moses for the widow and the stranger and the fatherless. Now, in Deuteronomy, which if you remember if you, your Bible words, Deuteronomy means second law. It's a restating of what had been stated in the previous four books, being the fifth book in the law. We see the general principle in Deuteronomy 24. He says uh, in verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Ruth was all three. She was the stranger. She was, she was from another country. She was fatherless. Her, she left her family behind. So for all intents and purposes, she had no father. She had no provision. And she was a widow. In Leviticus, uh, we see that the first time that these laws are stated, there's more detail to them. Uh, The first in Leviticus 19, uh, God, through Moses, expresses his will for the people with their vineyards. And he gives specifics. He says, you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape out of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and a stranger. He says the same thing in Leviticus 23 about grain, about crops. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you'll not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord, your God. And when God seals it with that, that's like saying, this is how it is. End of story. I'm the Lord, your God. That's it. So he lays down very strict edicts, dictates as to how people were to treat their property when they're harvesting from the land. He wants the people that are disadvantaged. He wants the people that don't have means to discover means in the fields of their people. So looking at all of this, Ruth must have had some instruction from Naomi. She is going by the book here. She's going by the law. She's adhering to these provisions made in the law of Moses as she goes out now looking for someone to give her permission to glean in their fields. She knows that they've come back. They're back in Bethlehem. We don't know where they're staying, where they're living. It could be that Elimelech had had a home that he left and they're coming back into a home after 10 years. There'd be a little work to do. We don't know. We don't know if they're staying somewhere else. Their shelter has obviously or evidently been taken care of, but now it's time to find some food. And so she's going out. She's engaging in that process. Verse three, then she left and she went and she gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. She happened to. She just so happened to wander into his field. What do you know? I like the way this is rendered. In Hebrew, it says that her chance chanced. (laughs) It's kind of weird, hard to translate, but her chance chanced to work in Boaz's field. In other words, 
fat chance. <laughs> to be a, a loose way to render that. Uh, there's nothing happenstance about this. God had allowed Ruth to choose her destination. Keep, hold on to that. In doing so, she went to Boaz's field by divine design. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing when he brought these women back from Moab. He knew what he was doing when Ruth set out to get food. You see God's hand in all of this. It's invisible, but you see it when you look through the eyes of your heart. Very much like what happens in our lives, folks. We'll get to that. The point is, it's not a chance encounter. This is not something that's an accident, that she just happened. Uh, that's how it's rendered, but I think that that rendering actually adds, em- <laughs> I almost said emphasis. <laughs> Depends on which syllable you put the emphasis on. Uh, almost, but it, it, it emphasizes the fact that it's not happenstance. Theologically, we call this the divine providence of God. We see both Ruth's action and God's sovereignty, his sovereign hand, working together in this verse. I came across a Latin proverb uh, and it says, it says, providence assists not the idle. In other words, there's your part, you're walking it out. And this is like the guy that says, I need a job. If you're going to be idle, you know, I'm praying for a job. I know God has that right job out there for me, but if you're going to sit on your couch and wait for the, jo- the job to drop in your lap, it probably ain't going to work the way you think it will. But you can go out, there's your part. You go out and you discover his providence. You understand how that's working? That's, that's what's happening here. She's going out and she's discovering the providence of God as she does. And, and it's interesting because the point in this is that God operates in the natural, supernatural realm in our lives. And he uses both my natural and his supernatural in a combination of human action and divine sovereignty to providentially work his will in our lives. That's how this works. Why? Because he wants to establish. He wants to strengthen us. And that's what he's doing with Ruth and Naomi. So, you know, we could get, and, and I, I really don't want to get off into the weeds talking about free will and predestiny, but I will a little bit. Um, just because I have time. Uh, but you know, when you look at it, folks, I, I, Chuck Smith said it so succinctly one time and so simply. He said, you want to know if you're predestined? Choose Jesus. That's it. It doesn't have to be a long theological debate. And I will not. People, sometimes they want to argue stuff like this. And my response to them is, which side would you like for me to argue from? Because I know both sides. I know the side that Arminius talks about, Arminianism, that's what it's called, free will. And I know the side that Calvin talks about, and you won't find five-point Calvinists around here. Uh, I reject that on the basis of God's word. But what Calvin talked about was just all predestiny. No, one doesn't stand without the other. Both come into play. Forget the guy's names, but we see that we are predestined and that we do choose. That's what's happening here. It's what's happening with Ruth. She was predestined to meet Boaz in that field that day. There is nothing in our lives that would ever, or in God's word, that would ever prove anything but that. She still had to leave the house. She still had to go with the attitude of saying, I'm going to go find somebody that'll let me glean in their fields. And that's what happened. My natural, his supernatural, human action, divine sovereignty. Something else about this is that, and I want to be careful how I state this, 
But we often approach life with a success and failure attitude. God doesn't think that way. Now, it's why the psalmist instructs us in, in Psalm 75, 6 and 7. He says, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. So you've got to understand that his sovereignty is always at work. So he does want us to recognize and to learn from our mistakes and, and things that we would call failures. He does want us to repent of sin. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is it's critically important that we realize that he's working ahead of us invisibly aligning circumstances in our lives, including those things that we would term as either successes or failures in establishing us in his will and strengthening us to walk it out. Here's an example. Joseph. If you've been around the church or you study God's word much, you probably know the story of Joseph. And this guy got sold into slavery by his brothers. He didn't know what was going on at that point. He just knew that his life took a pretty bad turn. Stuck in a hole, carried off at the caravan and all that. He didn't know. He didn't understand. He didn't know what God was doing. But later he recognized that it was the hand of God. God didn't give him a blueprint ahead of time. He didn't tell him. It's not in the contract, folks, for him to tell us ahead of time what he's doing in our lives. And for us to sometimes try to presuppose that, it can be a dangerous thing. It can be a slippery slope because we, it's not in the contract for him to tell us up front what he's doing. We have to trust him. Joseph recognized the will of God after he was established in Egypt. It was after the fact. In Genesis 50, verse 20, uh, there's Joseph and his brothers. I, I love this story and I've used this before, but I'll say it again because it's just a great scene. There's Joseph with his brothers in Egypt. He's the prime minister. He's top dog. He's second only to Pharaoh. And his brothers, their dad had just died. Isaac had just died. And they cook up the scheme. Let's go tell Joseph that dad said not to kill us. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's fine. So they go and they tell him, you know, dad said not to kill us. And he says, no, 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 no. Hang on a second, guys. You don't understand what's going on here. I'm paraphrasing, but this scene is great. He says in verse 20 of Genesis 50, he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. And I'll tell you what, through Joseph being raised up in Egypt and teaching the people how to store their grain when the seven-year famine hit and the people didn't just get by, they did fine, they did well. Millions, potentially millions of people were spared. That was a big deal. And then now his family coming, because famine is in the land of Israel, they drop down into Egypt. They're there with him. They didn't even know it was him when they first started dealing with him. And then he revealed himself to them. <laughs> that kind of freaked him out. But the point is, is that it was the divine hand of God, invisibly guiding, invisibly aligning, invisibly bringing things to a point where he would preserve his people through it. They had no idea when they're going through it. How much of an idea do we have when we go through trials? Sometimes, folks, it just plain hurts. Sometimes we have no idea why we're going through this thing. Sometimes, I'll tell you what, we find ourselves on our knees and saying, God, I just, I give this, I can't handle this. I can't take it. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how anything good could possibly come out of this. Take courage. He loves you. He's working. 
He's working it for good. Think about his invisible providential hand in your own life. So the point is we retain our freedom to choose in the same way that Ruth did. I remember the, the way that, that God brought Stacy and I to this church. Uh, um, I had had, uh, uh, by chance, had met with a guy in McMinnville. And he said, hey, call a guy named Doug Snow. And so I called Doug Snow. He's the pastor at Calvary Chapel, Southeast Portland. And I went in 2015 and had a bowl of chili with the guy. And uh, we talked for a half hour, 45 minutes, and off I went. And then uh, God had given Stacy and I this crazy vision that was formulating to, we felt led to assume the pastorate of an existing church in Oregon <laughs> and all. And so prayed about it for quite a while. And then pretty soon I just stopped praying about it because it's like, well, maybe I had too much chili that day. I don't know. And uh, I, I just, I wasn't really giving it much thought. And then you know, the corporate job opened up in Colorado and we were moving to Colorado. I had already gone to Colorado as in Fort Collins and was going to come back and move Stacy back. And probably less than two months in, I looked down at my phone. It rang in my office. I was sitting in my office in Fort Collins. And, and I see Doug Snow speaking out. Google puts the picture of the guy up there. And, and what on earth is Doug Snow calling for? Well, that was on a Tuesday. On Sunday, Sunday night, we'd had some family stuff come up. And Stacy said, I got to head for Oregon in the morning. And I said, okay, this is important. I'll, I'll book a flight as soon as we get off the phone. I'll be there on Friday. And she said, okay, honey, you know, and so we got off the phone. I booked a flight. I, I was, like I said, I was in management, so I knew that my boss would approve it. So two days later, I look at my phone in my office, and there's Doug Snow calling. He says, hey, I got a guy in my office here from a church in Newburgh. And um, <clears throat> are you interested? He said, John, God just put you on my heart. Are you interested in taking a look at this church? Because he knew that, you know, I had some background in the pastorate and all that. And I said, well, sure, Doug, I'd be happy to take a look at it. You know, I don't know what God's doing, all that. <laughs> and he said, so when can you get to Portland? I started laughing. I said, Doug, I'll be there Friday. What? I'll be there Friday. What do you mean Friday? Uh, yeah, I made a reservation two days ago. <laughs> and I got off the phone and I sit there in my office just stunned all by myself going, what on earth just happened? It was the providential hand of God. Doug got off the phone with the guy in his office and they looked at each other and said, did that just happen? Because they saw as well, they saw the providential hand of God. Point is that divine providence doesn't destroy our freedom. I didn't know by having a bowl of chili with the guy that God would totally transform my life and and we would be so blessed and we are so blessed here uh, doing life with you guys. Had no idea until God had established his will. And then he's been strengthening us to carry that out. God's providence takes our freedom into account. And in his infinite wisdom, he sets a course for us to fulfill his will. That's the point. Verse four. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him and they said, the Lord bless you. So these guys work for him. This is the boss showing up. And they go, hey, get to work. He could have. I've had bosses like that. But he doesn't. He gives them a salutation. He, gives, he, he says, man, the Lord be with you. And, and they're happy. They, they evidently have a, a love for this guy. They say, man, the Lord bless you. 
Remember, these are the days of the judges when every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. And this is significant because there's just garbage out in the landscape politically, socially, economically at times. And, 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 and what's happening though here is Boaz is speaking the language of faith. We know by the salutation that he is a man of great faith. And we know that he's surrounded himself with men of faith. The spiritual tone of Boaz and his workers was, it was just warm. It was friendly. It wasn't a man that he didn't hold himself above the other. Well, I, you know, I'm the boss. You better straighten up. No, he doesn't do that. He comes and he's just welcoming. He's gracious. That's his character. We're seeing the beginning of this, this guy's character here uh, in his first words. And we'll see him as we go along that he clearly represents Christ, that he's a type for Christ. A type in God's word, if you're not aware, is an impression. It's like the old-fashioned typewriter where the metal type would fly up and hit the ribbon and transfer an impression onto the page. That's where we get the word type. It's an impression in the Old Testament of something that has a fulfillment in the new. And there are types oozing out of this book. We'll get to them. I don't want to take time this morning. When he greeted them with a blessing, he said, the Lord be with you. And they, they said, the Lord bless you. Again, there's no hypocrisy here. It's the language of faith. And you can, you know, if you spend 10 minutes around somebody, you can get a pretty good idea as a Christian. If you understand, I'm not talking about jargon. I'm talking about hearts. You get a pretty good idea where someone's heart is oriented because out of the mouth flow the contents of one's heart. And... There's no hypocrisy here with this guy. We'll find out that his words and his actions match up. Uh, I was thinking about when I saw this week, and I don't want to get all political, but I saw that, that Joe Biden was giving a Thanksgiving blessing of some kind, and, and he was talking about the Book of Palms. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> At any rate, um, yeah, that, that's what I said. Wow. Uh, okay, moving on. Verse 5. <laughs> not going to go there. <laughs> says, and Boaz said to the servant who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Hmm, there's somebody new here in the field. And who is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it's a young Moabite woman that came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. So the servant in charge of the reapers here, he would be the guy that was the foreman. He was, he was like the manager of the harvest, of the fields. And he would be over the reapers, he would be over the women that followed the reapers, putting the grain in. They would tie them into sheaves. You've seen the grains that stand up in the fields. You know, they would stand them up like that. The heads would be up on, off the ground so they could dry. And very much like raking hay or something. You, put, you get it to where it'll dry. Anyway, and then after them would be the, the, the gleaners that would come. And he would have charge over all of them. So Boaz talks to this guy. He says, who's the woman? And I believe that his interest was stirred. He saw a new face among the gleaners. He, he didn't know who that was. And now he knew who she was, but I don't think he'd met her at this point. But even now, we don't know if there was a physical attraction stirring, but I believe that there was an attraction. We're going to find out that there's much, something much deeper going on in, in Boaz's thoughts towards this woman. Because the foreman doesn't know much about Ruth at all. Uh, he's just had a chance to watch her and he's impressed by her. He, he, man, she's uh, a good worker and all. We'll get to that. But, but 
Boaz goes on to talk about how he knew everything. He knew Ruth's story. He knew all about her. It had already been reported to him when he comes to the foreman here. In verse 7, the foreman's still talking. And she said, he's saying that, he's quoting Ruth. She said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little while in the house. So the house here would have been like a lean-to or a hut off to the side of the field. We're not talking about like the plantation house or some weird thing. But it would have been a place for them to get in out of the sun and to have their meals and all that as they worked in the fields. So uh, the foreman had been watching, though. He'd been watching Ruth, and he noticed that she was she's a hard worker. She was out there. She was diligent. She'd been here all day. Took a little break, but now she's back out there in the fields. Verse 8, and Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Uh, loosely translated into our vernacular... Listen up. This is important. Uh, and politely, please listen. I got something important to say. He goes on and says, don't go and glean in another field or go from here, but stay close to my young women. So Boaz, he, Boaz doesn't look at Ruth as an outsider here. He says, my daughter. He addresses her as my daughter. He, it could be that he's not a younger man. And she's a younger woman. It could be that he's looking at her in, in sort of that affectionate way. But the point in all of it is that he's addressing her not as a foreigner. He's addressing her not as a peasant or some person that was low on the, the scale of their social order. And she was. But he says, my daughter. So his first encounter with her, he treats her with respect and with dignity. He doesn't care if she's a Moabitess, and we'll find out why. Uh, so when he talks about the young women, they would be the ones who followed the reapers, as I mentioned. They would go, their job was to bundle and to cut the grain into sheaves. And, and so he's saying, follow them. His intent is on protecting her. He's not trying to limit her ability to, to go and glean in other fields and all that. But he wants to keep her safely in his own field. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. This is necessary. She was a stranger. And until now, she's been unprotected. She, there's no man in her life. This is a dangerous place. In the days of the judges, unprincipled men abounded. And it was very dangerous for her. It was not uncommon for women to be raped, for women to be taken advantage of in this culture, in the godless culture in the days of the judges. He says, go after them. Follow the young women's lead, is what he's saying. The fields weren't divided. They didn't have fences or hedges to divide their fields. They had marker stones at the edges of the fields. Uh, I've seen them in in ancient lands, these stone columns. They were very much like what we would have as a surveyor's marker. And they would mark off the fields. But unless you knew where to look, the field looked the same as the the neighbor's field. And he knew that she could easily wander into the neighbor's field. And there is where his authority would stop and she would be vulnerable. He couldn't protect her there. So he leads off with Ruth with offering her his land and the covering of his people. He offers her provision, drink from the pitchers. He is just being absolutely gracious to this woman. 
And she knows that she doesn't deserve it any more than we know that we don't deserve the love of God. But we'll take it. It's not based on our merit. She has nothing to merit here. She's a poor woman. She's a husbandless woman. That was looked down on in society as well. She's a foreigner. That was looked down on as well. She doesn't have a lot going for her. And this guy just pours on the grace. She's moved by Boaz's acts of kindness. Verse 10, she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor? Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Why, Boaz? Why are you giving, why are you treating me this way? Why am I getting grace from you? You know my place, you know my station in life, and it's not high. Remember, Boaz was a man of godly character. I think there's more going on than his character here. I think it goes to his own mother. Remember, Boaz is the son of Rahab, a Canaanite woman, a foreigner, a prostitute. And she had proved faithful and loyal to the Jews when the city of Jericho was destroyed, protecting the spies and letting them out, all of that. She had come to know God's love and grace personally in her own life. She was integrated into the, the Israelites' society. She was fully integrated. She ended up marrying a guy that was from the tribe of Judah named Salmon. And then they had a family themselves. And so when Boaz grew up, he grew up with the knowledge that his mother, his own mother was a foreigner. His own mother was a, a Gentile. What the Jews would look on it as a heathen. His own mother had demonstrated to him evidently that this is how you treat people. This is how you treat the disadvantaged. This is how you treat the people that have slipped through the cracks. So I believe he had a very strong desire to treat Ruth with dignity, with respect, with honor. Not because of who she was, but because of who he is. Again, the symbolism here is powerful. As we look at Boaz and we see the way that he comes and he approaches people and he treats people, we can see Christ in his actions. His own mother had been added to the line of Messiah and Boaz, as a result, carried that. He was part of the seed. King David would be his great-grandson. Rahab had come to know God's love and grace personally. That's the point. And I believe that as a result, Boaz knew God's love and grace also. With reference to Gentiles, bouncing forward here to Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to a Gentile church, quoting Isaiah. And he says in verse 12 of Romans 15, this church that he's writing to, he didn't plant that church, but he had a great burden for them. That's why the book of Romans is, uh, if you look at the New Testament as a mountain range, Romans would be, I consider it the highest peak because it is the greatest treatise of what it is to be a Christian, what the transaction is, what we get in the deal as a result of God's grace. So Paul here writing about the Gentiles, he said in verse 12, he says, there shall be a root of Jesse. And he, Jesus, is the root of Jesse, who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. We're going to find out again in Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, 
shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesse would be Boaz and Ruth's grandson, as, as I mentioned. And out of his seed, out of his line would come Messiah. And in him alone, we would find hope. Verse 11. And Boaz answered and said to her, it's been fully reported to me. He was getting around. Fully reported me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you've left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. You guys ever live in a small town? (laughs) My notes, small town, big news. (laughs) This was the chatter, and Boaz had gotten an earful. He knew all about what had happened in Ruth's life. It had been reported to him, her nobility and her actions, the way that she had just, she had forsaken her land, she had forsaken her family, she had taken care of Naomi and taken her on as her own charge. Remember, we looked at all the things that she said to Naomi in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where those five statements, the center of it being your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And then she goes on and she swears an oath to take care of Naomi for the rest of her days under the curse of death. Ruth was serious about her commitment and it had gotten, word of it had gotten to Boaz. She was marveling though. I, you know, I believe that she was blown away. She just, she couldn't understand how he, a Jew, would show such undeserved favor to her, a Gentile, not just a Gentile, but a Moabite woman. As we've looked at in Deuteronomy 23, <laughs> they were definitely not a favored people of the Lord's. And yet he's being gracious, more than gracious. As a result, Ruth would become established among the people and in the lineage of Messiah. Your people, my people. Verse 12, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the God, the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So Boaz here, he pronounces a blessing on Ruth, not only for her sacrificial loyalty to Naomi, but especially, I believe, for her acceptance of the God of Israel. He's a godly man. And he's saying, you know what? It's essentially what we see in Romans chapter 8. She's been grafted in. She's now part of the family. And he's letting her know that he totally approves of that. In the same way that his own mother, again, was grafted in. And she was added to the family of God. When he says, under whose wings, uh, he, what he's talking, it, it, it's an idiom. and what is it, It's a picture of a young helpless bird under the wings of its mother, uh, 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 the protective wing. And he's saying that your relationship to God is kind of like that. Uh, he, the, the word here, uh, it's the, he's saying, essentially, I appreciate your faith. But the word here, wings, is also rendered covering. Same word that's used for a skirt or a robe. And in chapter 3, verse 9, when Ruth is asking Boaz to spread his covering over her, same word, same concept. He's saying you've come under God's covering. And who would have thought when he's saying this, that in a short time, she would be beckoning him to spread his covering over her life. Again, type of Christ will get there. As a result of all of this, she would be strengthened in and covered by the Lord. Your God, 
my God. Boaz would actually be the one who would fulfill these promises. This, this, he, he does this blessing. He pronounces his blessing on her. And he would, he, again, providentially, he would be the one that would fulfill the blessing that he just sought God over. Uh, notice his humility. He says that the, the, all of this is going to be by the Lord God of Israel. He sees himself as an instrument of God's providence towards Ruth. He understands that. Are you an instrument of God's providence towards others? Good question. Verse 13, then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. Ruth responds here in gratitude towards Boaz. A couple of things about that. Boaz had given her comfort in her economic situation, which was dire. And she showed up in town and didn't have any way to make a living. She knew she could go out and glean, and she was, she was absolutely reliant upon the grace of others to be able to do that. And so he's given her great comfort, great relief from her circumstances. The other thing that she comments on here is the kindness in his words towards her. His compassion is visible, it's tangible as he interacts with her. Ruth understood that as a foreigner, and she saw herself accurately, that she was on the low rung of Israel's social order. They had, there was an order there. And she was the poorest of the poor. She was without a means to make a living. She showed up with a woman that, her mother-in-law and all of that. She saw herself accurately in their culture. She's absolutely amazed at Boaz's grace towards her. Next week, we'll get into uh, the nuts and bolts and how he just loads her up, how he pours it on exceedingly abundantly above all she could have asked or thought. Uh, it be a long time before the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians and said that. But again, bouncing forward, that's what's going on in her life. <clears throat> I want to close with a couple of comments on providence, the invisible hand of God. Part of what I pray for when we gather is that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Spiritual vision and spiritual hearing. If you're not looking for the providential hand of God, you probably aren't going to see it. The world looks at things that happen in people's lives as chance. The world looks at things that happen in people's lives as fate. Oh, well, it was fate. Oh, it was It was chance. No, it's the providential hand of God. As we understand that, actually, fate and chance are a heresy. And I see it happen in the body of Christ where people will ascribe something. Well, that's just fate. That's just the way it is. It's not fate. It's not chance. It's the Lord. And folks, as we're plugged into that reality, as we understand that that's part of the dynamic in our lives that God is working And it might be moving to another state, like I shared with you guys, that might be something very small. Be careful not to ascribe the events in your life to fate or chance. Let me tell you why. It's impossible to have hope in fate. It's impossible to have hope in chance. Especially when our lives are getting jacked up, when we are being pressed with tough circumstances, when we don't understand what's going on in our lives or in somebody that we love, it's not fate. It's not chance. There's a place where we can trust 
that we don't see it. Joseph didn't see it. So many, Paul didn't see it when he got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. It's not fate. It's not chance. It's providence to recognize that God is over every aspect of our lives. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's his providence at work. Be comforted in that. Be at rest. And I know it's, it's just odd to me. I remember being a kid and seeing Christians and thinking, why are they just so calm? Because everything's going crazy around them. And I would understand, I come, came to understand that they were resting in the providence of God. They were resting in the knowledge that he has this. You can rest in the knowledge that I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why my brothers stuck me in a hole and sold me off to this caravan and now I'm going to Egypt. I don't understand why I went to jail because this woman tried to seduce me and I said no. All of that is not success and failure driven. It's Holy Spirit driven. It's providentially driven. And we can have great trust. We can have great hope in our lives in understanding that. Ruth shows up, she is destitute. She's, she's made these promises to her mother-in-law and maybe under her breath she's going, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. But you know what? God had his hand on the thing the whole time. And it's a great lesson for us, folks. He has his hand on us. He loves us. He won't leave us or forsake us. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening with grandma as well as what's happening over here as well as these things, these people over here that are not getting, whatever it is. Trust him. Know that he is providentially bringing things because it's not static. His providence is active and he is bringing things to completion. He's bringing things to completion in our lives. He's bringing this age to completion. I am absolutely convinced. I don't know how long we've got, but I don't think it's very long because providentially he's working his will. He's working his purposes through all of the stuff. If my man didn't get into office, I don't have to worry about it. Oh, well, maybe a little. No, uh, I don't have to worry about it. If, if, if that job that I thought was ideal didn't come through, I don't have to worry about it. You see, you can't do that with fate or chance. You can only do that with the Lord. So be encouraged. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, this wonderful book of Ruth and for the lessons in it that are just so obvious for us when we look and I pray for each one, Lord, each one here, each one within the sound of my voice, that, uh, Lord, that you would strengthen us in seeing you in the midst of our circumstances, seeing your providential hand at work, seeing you not through our eyes because you're invisible, but through the eyes of faith. So, Lord, for anyone that is catching this message that doesn't know you, come under Uh, the hand of God. Allow him to establish you and to strengthen you in Jesus Christ. There's a simple transaction that needs to take place. And it's simply saying, Jesus, I, I believe you went to that cross for me, that you died for me to give me life, life on this earth and life eternal. I turn from my old life. I repent. I ask you to forgive me for my sins And I ask you to come into my heart, into my life. I pray you'd give me those spiritual eyes that I could see your providential hand at work because up until now, I've just been drifting. If that's you, make that transaction today. And then tell somebody about it. Jesus called people publicly. 
And, and in doing so, it strengthens our faith. Father, for the rest of us, those that know you, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would work in our hearts, that you give us a good day in, in Christ, and that your will would be done in us and through us. We thank you in Jesus' name.